0: All right. let's take a look at our notes. We've been talking about living the greater life, and we've talked the last few weeks about how living the greater life recognizes that we don't live in isolation, we live in connection, connection with Christ and connection with one another. We talked in our first weekend about how when God places His calling on our life to ministry and to touch other people's lives, that... Well, we burn the plow and we go and do what God has called us to do. We talked last week about living our lives intentionally, intergenerationally, where we recognize spiritual father and mothers in our lives and spiritual fathers and mothers that we are going to be towards others, continually receiving from others and passing on. That the church, especially, has to think intergenerationally, but we as individuals, we should have spiritual moms and dads, and we should be spiritual moms and dads to others. Today, we're going to talk about a little bit more difficult subject. We're going to talk about how when we live the greater life, we, we don't avoid pain, we don't avoid grieving, but we recognize living the greater life, we're going to grieve, we're going to hope, and we're going to refuse to go back to what doesn't work in our lives. Go ahead and take a look at your notes with me. I'm going to read you three passages of Scripture. The first one is found in Luke chapter 7, verse 11. And it came to pass the day after that he, meaning Jesus, went into a city called Nain and many of his disciples went with him and much people. This is the King James translation. Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Now you need to realize the reason this is pointed out is because the author is trying to say to you, this woman is in a hopeless state. To be unmarried and have no children in her later years in life, at the time of this writing in this particular culture, I mean, she she was just so far up a creek, I mean, what he's describing here is literally an almost hopeless situation, such that Jesus is moved to compassion for her. And she was a widow, and much people of the city were with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her situation. And he said unto her, weep not. Now, you would never say to someone who was grieving over a, a close loss, well, don't cry. Jesus only says that because he knows how this story is going to end. And he came up, and he touched the bier. This is where the young man was laid out. The, and they that bare him stood still. And he said, young man, I say unto thee, arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak and he delivered him to his mother. Before we go any further, I want you to think for just a minute, how many people did Jesus raise from the dead in the city of Nain? We only have this one example. So I wanna ask you this, did Jesus only have compassion on her Or did Jesus have compassion on everyone? We need to recognize that from time to time, we are going to experience losses, and Jesus won't turn those circumstances around for us. Sometimes He comes along and walks close to us during our times of loss. We are grateful for the miracles of the Bible. We are grateful for what Christ continues to do in our life. But we also know there were other families in Nain that lost loved ones that Jesus didn't give them back their loved one. No. No but Christ walks with all of us during those times. Living the greater life recognizes there will be times of grief, but we go through it recognizing that there are also reasons for hope. Take a look at the next passage with me. Psalms chapter 30, verse four. Sing unto the Lord, O you saints, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. For his anger endureth for a moment. Couple things. He's talking about God's anger and circle that phrase for a moment. You need to know he doesn't mean that. What he's doing is he's painting a picture telling us that God's anger doesn't last forever. Sometimes he was upset with the Israelites for an extended period of time. In his favor is light. Weeping may endure for a night. Circle that, endure for a night. He doesn't mean that either. Sometimes weeping can go on for a lot longer than just one night. But joy cometh in the morning. Circle that. What he's trying to communicate to us is the hurt of grief that we feel doesn't last forever, that joy does return, and i 'm not talking about grief just at the loss of a loved one there's all types of losses that you have to grieve a person that 's been in the same job for for several years that suddenly gets fired has to grieve that loss. A person that gets served divorce papers has to grieve that feeling of loss. There are all kinds of losses in life sometimes it 's the loss of a dream you, re- you really wanted to do this, and now you find out that you can 't in other words they, all of these losses have to be grieved in some way what the writer is saying is there is a time of grief there is a time of darkness but joy does return and then take a look at this last passage with me numbers chapter 14 that night all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud all the israelites were mad at the pastors or i mean all the israelites grumbled against moses and aaron and the whole assembly said to them if only we had died in egypt tell the person next to you what they were in egypt they were slaves in Egypt. It's gotten to the point where they're standing around thinking, man, that slavery's looking pretty good. If better, if we'd have died in Egypt, we're in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Now, you may think that's a good question, but God had no intention of letting them die out there. Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should have an election and choose a different leader and go back to Egypt. Friends, we always want to keep in mind, it is our nature to return to patterns even if the patterns aren't working for us. Slavery was bad, but they're thinking slavery is looking kind of good right now. This is what happens to all of us. We'll go through a time of of difficulty, stress, and we will return to behaviors that didn't work for us in the past. Let's walk through here. Letter A, the greater life grieves, hopes, and heals. Now, I do want to give you what I call the too soon warning. If you've experienced a loss this week, the last couple of months, the last several months, this sermon may be too soon for you. I would never talk to a griever that's just experienced a serious loss and talk to them about joy returning in the morning. No, there's a time to weep. The Bible makes that plain. Yes, there will be a few. Future time to rejoice, but the Bible makes it clear that no, 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 there is a time to weep. As I said, Jesus wouldn't have told this woman that he raised the son from that, wouldn't have told her not to weep except for the fact that he is going to raise him from the dead. In other words, grief is God's process of healing our hearts. So take a look here. We picture, though, the greater life as a life that avoids pain. In other words, we picture the greater life as never having any problems. It doesn't mean that. Every life experiences struggles. Turn the person next to you and say, every life experiences struggles. Every life experiences tragedies, failures, losses, hurts, and disappointments. How many of you have a loved one with an addiction? Raise your hand. How many of you have a loved one who's gone through a divorce? How many of you have had a loved one die? How many of you have a loved one who you are fearful over their future right now, whether it's emotionally or physically or financially. You understand what it is to go through these things. Oftentimes, we condemn ourselves and say, well, you know, if I was really what I was supposed to be, I wouldn't be going through this stuff as though living the greater life meant living a pain-free life. Friends, this is not a biblical perspective. Look at number two. Well-meaning Christ followers have taught a theology, a theology to our young people and our young adults, and on up as we age, a theology of sweetness and light, while the Bible and history show us a much more painful picture We've been shocked over the last couple of months at the persecution going on in different parts of the Middle East. We've been shocked over the last few years of persecutions that have been going on to the church in Egypt and other parts of the world. We look at this and, and we're shocked by it. Friends, we're shocked by it because we live in such great freedom here in the United States. We are unaccustomed to the idea that someone would be persecuted for their faith. But the truth of the matter is history has always shown us that persecution for one. Faith is the norm. What we have lived the last couple of hundred years in the United States, we have enjoyed the exception to that. But we look and we see what's going on around the world, and and we're shocked by it. And we should be shocked by the violence, and we should be shocked by man's unloving nature towards other men and women. Although it should shock us at the violence of it, we should also recognize historically this is what has always gone on, yet we have developed a theology primarily here in the United States. One of sweetness and light, that, man, if I really follow Jesus, everything's going to go great for me. Tell the person next to you what happened to the disciples. Go ahead and tell them if you can remember. Well, things went really well for them, and they got a good increase in their salaries there at the church. They bought a really nice house. One of them got a few horses. In fact, man, things are really spreading all over. They're doing just wonderfully. In fact, several of them are getting ready to retire now. That's not what happened, is it? No, no, no. The disciples... We're all martyred, except for John. John was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, but martyred, died violent deaths for their faith. Yet when we go through hurts, we wonder why is this happening? Friends, we need to remember that we live in a world that, that it has been occupied by sin. We live in a world that, that covenants have been broken with God. We, we live in a world that the sins of other people are oftentimes going to spill over onto you. Friends, recognize this is not our permanent home, yet we are shocked by this because oftentimes we buy into this idea, if I'm really living the greater life, if I'm really doing everything I'm supposed to do, I will never experience struggles and pain. My experience of pastoring and my personal experience teach me differently. Take a look at number three. But the greater life does do three things differently in the face of these struggles. Three things, and I want to point them out to you. Letter A, the greater life grieves without guilt. We don't feel guilty about we have to go through this time of hurt. We don't feel like we are lesser Christians because of it. Words, we recognize that no, grief is God's process of healing broken hearts. Every loss that you experience will have to be grieved in some way. Whether it's just an afternoon of feeling disappointment or whether it's months and months of allowing God to heal a broken heart. But the greater life recognizes I shouldn't feel guilty about feeling badly. Christ followers struggle with this they'll say things like well you know I need to be strong or you know I need to just practice having the joy of the Lord. Friends in fact sometimes we'll feel like well we need to go out and accomplish a mission for Christ friends, oftentimes during times of hurt, more than going out and accomplishing the mission for Christ, you need to sit down and have a cup of tea, okay? In other words, there there is more communion with God in the cup of tea, allowing Him to speak to our hearts than there is in going out and trying to accomplish some great mission. People who live the greater life don't feel guilty about God using this process of grief, and don't try and hide from it. The next Roman numeral one, they don't figure out life's answers. They simply feel life's hurts from time to time. And I know our hurts lead us to all kinds of questions. How could this happen? How could God allow… I know there are lots of questions, but those who live the greater life step back from their questions and say, Lord, please just continue to comfort my heart. Help me through this. Roman numeral two, the greater life allows the Lord's pace without hurry, but also without lingering… In other words, we don't feel like we need to rush through it, but we also know there is a time when God is calling us forward. So we don't hurry through it, but we, are, we try and be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Lord, if it's time for me to move on to the next step, I want to be open to that. The second thing the greater life does is let her be. It hopes for a better future. During times of hurt, it's easy to become convinced that joy will never return. Look at Roman numeral one. The greater life fights the fear that joy won't return and brings extreme thoughts captive. From time to time when you're hurting, you're going to allow thoughts to, to run wild. Well, in fact, The the truth of the matter is, we think about breaking off relationships, we thinking about making making large decisions, we think about, in fact, from time to time, even doing harm to ourselves. Friends, during these times, we have to bring those extreme thoughts captive. Those that live the greater life recognize this is a time of hurt, this is a time of struggle, but I'm not going to say joy will never return, and I'm not going to allow my thoughts to just run wild. We do have the ability to bring thoughts captive. The next one, Roman numeral two under letter B, the greater life tries to maintain relationships without blame and without inappropriate anger. When we're hurting, it's awfully easy for us to strike out at other people. Now, Friday, I was driving through San Diego. Debbie and I were there, and we were driving down Market Street. I've grown up in Southern California. Debbie and I have probably driven down Market Street, I don't know, probably 100 times during our li- lifetime. We've been married for 30-something years, and so we've, we've been to San Diego hundreds of times. I mean, so we're driving down there, but my wife has this habit of telling me where I'm at when, whenever I'm there. And so, you know, they, oh, there's a 7-Eleven. Oh, there's a subway. And she has this running commentary. I don't know why this is. I don't know where this comes from. But, I, you know, I've got this woman in the dashboard telling me where I'm at. I've got this, you know, I mean, everyone should tell me where I'm at. Debbie's a very helpful person. You know, we drove by to put my paycheck in. And I'm very grateful for my paycheck. Thank you. And so I pull up to the teller window, you know, not the teller window, the cash machine thing there. And, you know, I'm putting it in. And she's telling me, oh, press that now. Press that now. As though this is my very first rodeo with a, a teller machine. And so I, I, they just invented these, huh? The first one I've ever seen. And so she just... I don't know why, this is just a habit that she has. And most of the time, I don't think about it. It's just, that's just what she does. She has this running commentary. She should be like a sportscaster. Well, he's rounding first, now heading to second, you know, and my husband's sitting in the front seat. I mean, just you know, she just <laughs> has that gift. And so, I, but I'm sitting there, and I'm going down Market Street, and I get this text from Ron Clinton telling me that, that Best Gonzalez, the... Is really bad, and he's been a part of our congregation for years, and, and I did what most men do. The, I got that, I saw what it said, and then I immediately shared with her all of my feelings. I'm just waiting to see how gullible some of you are. No, I did what every grown man does. I went silent. In fact, when something bad happens, how many of you go silent? I did. And so, I'm riding along. She doesn't even know what's happened and she's continuing on the commentary. So I'm hurting over potentially losing a friend. I didn't know what the Lord was going to do at that point, but I'm hurting over this, and she's telling me, oh, there's a subway, and I'm thinking, we've eaten at that subway. What are you telling me about that for? And I turned, and I snapped at her. It it no sooner got out of my mouth than I realized what I had done, and I stopped, and I told her what was going on, and I apologized to her. But friends, how many times do we hurt inside and we turn around and look for someone to blame for what we're feeling? Or we, we allow ourselves to get angry at other people. In fact, those of you that have suffered serious loss, you know what a danger it is to, to begin to look at others, oh, they should do this, they should say this, they should. Wait a minute. Those that live the greater life recognize that no, I'm hurting right now. I need to avoid blaming others for my hurt, and I need to avoid slipping into inappropriate anger. The people who live the greater life are going to experience all the same losses all of us suffer, but they handle them by not rushing through the grief. They don't allow themselves to become convinced that joy doesn't return in the morning, and they try and avoid looking for others to blame. Look at letter C, the last one over whatever time is needed it accepts that healing accepts the healing god brings through grief it looks for and accepts that joy returns and this is kind of hard when you get used to the fact that you're, you've been in financial problems for a long time. You've worked and you've battled and things have been so hard for so long, then God sends a blessing and, and you almost have trouble recognizing it. Maybe you have lost something important to you and God brings along another blessing and you just kind of you just kind of nod your head and accept it without really stepping back and seeing the goodness of God. The, some, you'll suffer a huge loss, but yet will... Ex- Enjoy blessing in other areas. I had one of my brothers in Christ, Pastor Dave Peters, catch me this last, uh, in fact, it was just yesterday. We were walking down the stairs here at Cornerstone. We get a lot of cardio here. We just walk up and stairs all the time. It doesn't matter where you're going, it's going to involve stairs. I don't know why some of you ride in those elevators. Those are death traps, okay? And so, you know, no, seriously. And I should know. And so, you know, I, the, we're walking up the stairs and he's got a, a wedding coming up. His daughter's getting married and I gotten, you know, the. Uh, I'm not doing the wedding, but I'm going to it. And, and so we were talking about it. And a lot of the staff is, if you didn't get invited, don't feel bad. He just doesn't like you as much as me. And so, you know, so we're, you know, we were talking about it and he stopped me and he said, you know, we have to remember the joyful times. And Dave said that to me because it was about a year before I lost my son. He lost his son. And we have to remind ourselves that there are joyful times as well. Friends, when you go through your times of hurt, sometimes you're not going to recognize the blessings that God is putting into your life. Be careful. The psalmist told you, joy does return. Those who live the greater life look for it. And they recognize it when it comes so many times. We are just oblivious to God's goodness because of the hurting that you're going through. Let's look at another area. The greater life refuses to go back to what's not working. In other words, it's determined to break out of pattern living. Number one, sometimes it takes us a long time to figure out, but we all have awakenings. We awaken to things that simply aren't working, but yet... We've done it that way so many times. We just see it fail and fail, but we always go back to it. From time to time, we'll recognize, we'll awaken, we'll say, you know what, that is not working. A student, you know, when they pass the tests out and you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, you know what, I probably shouldn't have watched TV so much last night. I probably, you know, I probably should have read this chapter. You know, I I probably should have looked at my notes. You know, I, I probably, you know, and you're running through your mind, you know, next time, I'm going to be better prepared. But two weeks later, the chapter test is coming up, and the evening before, you're sitting there, and you see that show, and you watch that show, and then that show, and then that show, and pretty soon it's time you go in, you lay down, thinking, "Well, i will get up early and study in the morning, like that's going to happen. And so, you know, the next morning you get up the, at the very last moment, and you run through the kitchen and grab the toast that mom graciously made for you, and you're running and jumping on the bus, and you haven't even remembered half of your books with you, more or less, to study for something. You sit down, they hand out the test, And you go through the same process. You know, next time I'm going to, we return to it time after time until there's an awakening. At every age and stage of our lives, we see things that this is causing damage to me. I want to break this pattern. Look at number two with me. Successful people do stupid stuff too. But they recognize patterns faster and they are more determined to break them they recognize them more quickly, and they are more determined to break them. You know, most people don't recognize the majority of our day is spent out living, living out patterns. You know, we get dressed the same way. We usually go to work the same way. We just we do things just in a pattern. Most of you listen to the same three stations on the radio. You or you've got four favorite CDs. You know, you you tend to live out patterns. If you were to write down all of the meals that you make in a month, you'd find out that in the course of th- uh, thirty days, if you cook fifteen times, it probably narrows down to only five different meals from month to month. And always we tend to live patterns, and I don't think there's there's anything wrong with that. But patterns have a way of becoming destructive. The most of you that, uh, for those of you who are married, I would venture to say that you have the same three arguments over and over and over. In, in fact, let me just go ahead and tell you what your, your top three, well, I'll tell you the top two arguments. One, you're going to have arguments about finances. And then the other argument you're going to have are what are called division of labor. How many of you know what division of labor arguments are? This is about who's going to do what now our household we had have, we have those arguments for a long time, and they, over time they do tend to sort themselves out i don 't know how we got this one because this one just always struck me as weird. My wife will take the trash to the door <laughs> but that 's man country out there. <laughs> I, I, I really don't don't really get it. In fact, the other day, she pulled the liner out of the trash can. And my wife is, you know, I just tighten it up and then throw it in the trash. But, you know, she ties a nice knot. How many of you ladies tie a nice knot in the top of the trash? You're afraid someone's going to see it. I know. And so, you know, you just don't want it to look not look nice. And so you tie a nice knot. The, I walked through the kitchen and she, the trash was sitting there and, and she'd already tied the nice knot and she wasn't in the room. So I walked through and I picked it up and, and I took it out and took it all the way to the trash can. And she came in and she said, hey, honey, where's that trash? I said, I took it out. So she went and looked by the door. She came back and said, it's not there. I said, honey, I took it to the trash. And she said, no, you, you know, you haven't been gone that long. I said, honey, I can see the trash can from here. I was obviously gone long enough to get there and get back here. I'm not hiding it, okay? But she's so accustomed to just taking it to the door. She said, well, I thought you would take it to the door. I said, why would I leave it by the door, all right? And so it's one of those division... We have the same arguments time after time. Friends, this is all part of pattern living. People who live the greater life recognize these patterns more quickly, and they're more determined to break them. I've watched as people have brought in a manager in their business, only to recognize later on, I didn't know them well enough. I didn't talk to their references enough. I didn't have a long enough relationship with them. I shouldn't be surprised that this person stole Only to go two or three years and to bring in someone that they don't know well enough, that they haven't known long enough, and they haven't checked references thoroughly enough to give them the same opportunity and to watch it happen again. Friends, pastoring as long as I have, I see patterns lived out in business, I see patterns lived out in marriages, I see patterns lived out in the workplace, I see patterns lived out in parenting. People who live the greater life get good at spotting destructive patterns in their life and they're very determined to break them. Take a look at number three. Sometimes, though, you're not the one living the pattern, sometimes you're the one enabling the pattern. So, second chances are wonderful, but keep in mind, sorry is not enough to give a second opportunity to. You have to ask yourself, what will be different? Would you underline that question? What will be different? Now, as a pastor, I ask this often. People say, you know, I'm going to do this, and I'll ask the question, haven't you done this before? How did it go? Well, it turned ugly. Well, wait a minute. Tell me what will be different. And most of the time, it comes down to, well, I want to be forgiving. Wait a second. Understand, you can be forgiving. You can have genuine repentance and acceptance of of grace. You can have that, and that's a very real thing. You can have that, without giving the second chance to do that same thing again. Now, some of you who have been Christ followers a long time, you're going to struggle with this. You're going to feel like, well, Pastor Ron is, is not really understanding genuine sorrow, repentance, and grace, all right? But I'll just tell you candidly, if someone steals from the cash box, no matter how sorry, no matter how repentant, I will not let them within 25 feet of the cash box ever again. Now, for some of you, that's hard. Say, Pastor Ron, you're not really being free. Friends, I can forgive without enabling someone. I don't buy people who are addicted to alcohol. I don't buy them booze for Christmas. I just don't, okay? In other words, you say, well, Ron, that's, no, 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 that is the same thing. You have to ask the question, what will be different? Let me give you a few ways to ask this. The first thing is to ask, answer this question. Am I different? Sometimes there are situations where the other person isn't actually causing the problem. I'm causing the problem. And so am I different? In other words, have I recognized something in my behavior? Something in the way I'm handling this? Do, uh, do I recognize I've seen that and I'm going to commit to making a change? Well, if not, then go to the second question. Are they different? Are they different in a way that will make this work? If so, then make sure you can articulate that. Because I'm just going to ask you the question, are you different? Are they different? The third question, is the situation fundamentally different? In other words, have circumstances changed enough to where I am unlikely to repeat this pattern? And then finally, letter D, are you trying again because of an outside success? In other words, they've gone and done something else for a while and did really well. And now you're going to give a second opportunity? Or, have they gone and tried something else and now you're gonna give a second opportunity because you feel bad for them? Now, you need to understand that Christ followers are the most easily manipulated people on the planet, okay? Just wanna tell you candidly, we are suckers for pretty much everything. And it's because we have enjoyed so much grace and forgiveness, we are quick to give grace and forgiveness, without using the wisdom that goes along with it. In fact, there's a book uh, entitled The Sociopath Next Door. Uh, that some of you that are really stuck in living in patterns with destructive people, it might be helpful to you. Sociopath next door, and I'm not calling you a sociopath or the people around you because we all think of axe murderers, but a sociopath is someone who has an incorrectly developed conscience or a lack of conscience. In other words, they they just don't feel empathy towards others in the way that a normal person does. And so oftentimes, they will be very manipulative people. And so they will use one particular, particular thing, and that is pity. The people who battle addictions can be highly manipulative. And I am saying that to people, I know many of you battle addictions. You need to be on guard. You can be highly manipulative people. It's very difficult to carry on an addiction without developing the ability to manipulate the people that you love the most in the world. But sociopaths are very adept at getting people to feel badly for them. In fact, when they interviewed them, they said, what do you want people to feel when you interact with them? The author was expecting them to want to feel respect or admiration or or fear or something, but time after time they said, I want people to feel sorry for me. If I can get someone feeling sorry for me, I can get them to do anything I want. Friends, Christ followers oftentimes enable destructive behaviors because we confuse forgiveness with pity. No, God offers forgiveness. God offers us the the grace that he pours out on us. We need to be cautious about enabling behaviors time after time after time. People who live the greater life not only don't want to live in patterns, they want to help other people break out of destructive patterns. Look at number four. People who live the greater life have help avoiding their selective memory. Put your notes aside for just a minute. And I need to ask you questions. I've got a couple of them, but it mainly comes down to do you have a selective memory? The truth of the matter is we all battle it at some time or another. Do you remember how you had that boyfriend or girlfriend in high school that you went with them and broke up? I don't even know how what terminology you'd use today for someone who's boyfriend and girlfriend. When I was a kid, we went together. Other Before that, people went steady. Then they were going out but didn't actually go anywhere. But, you know, it just the terminology changes. But I'm talking about the boyfriend-girlfriend relationship. You remember how in high school you went with that, that young man and, you know, he really hurt you. And so you guys broke up. And a few months later, you were walking along and you saw him in the hallways. And you thought, man, he is so cute. And, you know, you remembered how that that one sweet thing that he did for you, uh, you've forgotten. The the 84 brutal things that he did for you but you know you but you remember that and just he's just so cute and so you go back with him and then you're together with him for a few months and you know all of a sudden you remember why you had broken up with him in the first place and but and so you guys break up again and a few months later you go back with him and then you break up and you go back with him and this pattern goes on and on it's because we have a tendency to forget bad memories more quickly than we forget good memories. So we will have selective memory and we'll remember this good thing, this good thing, this good thing, this good thing, and this good thing and forget all of the rotten stuff and continually go back to them. Friends, we have to be cautious here. When we've had situations of literal physical abuse, and I understand it does occur where a woman will abuse her husband, but statistically, most of the time, it is a husband physically abusing a wife. When we've had that, occur here in the church. First of all, we tell the woman, you need, you've got to get out of the house. We always counsel people to never stay in a physically abusive situation, in a dangerous situation, all right? And so just understand, that will be our, our first counsel. But when we've had people get out of the house for safety purposes, the oftentimes we'll have to have a talk here because she is always wanting to let him come back in the house, always. And it doesn't matter what he's done what she says is always the same. She always says, well, I feel so badly for him. Whether it's an affair or whether it's physical abuse or it's an addiction or it's whatever, well, I feel so badly for him. Friends, the selective memory causes us to remember the good stuff and to remember how we got here. Selective memory causes us to go back and repeat the same pattern time after time after time each time promising ourselves we will not go back. The antidote to selective memory is to recognize our patterns, commit ourselves that we will not continue to live them or enable them. And finally, to my question, do you have people in your life that you allow to help you with your selective memory? Do you have people in your life that when you're about to return to a pattern and they recognize you are about to go there again, they put their hand on your shoulder and say, you know what, can, can we just talk about this just a little bit? Can we just, i I just, I just like to share some concerns that I have before you make this decision. Do you have people in your life That you have given permission to. Tell me if I'm taking a wrong turn. I remember just in the the early days after the loss of of my eldest son, I remember telling senior staff, You need to know my decision making is not good right now. If I'm going to make a bad decision, it is your job to tell me that even now I am grateful for having staff around me that if I'm going to make a bad call, I'll just ask them, You know, am I missing something here? Last weekend I heard something. I went and asked a staff person. out. Then I walked back in. I said, is there, is there some factors that I'm not seeing clearly here? The staff person said, Yeah, Pastor Ron, you need to think about this, this, and this. And when I went away thinking about that, he helped me with my selective memory. Do you have people in your life that you are willing to not only hear, but listen to? Men, if you're married, you live at your own peril to ignore the counsel of your wife. Now, I understand we all laugh and we all joke. Yeah, my wife's always telling me what to do or my husband's always trying to get his way. I understand that you you have that teasing dynamic. I'm not preaching against that today. I will other times, but I'm not today. But please, when God blesses you with a spouse that loves you, ignore their counsel with great fear. Ignore it with trepidation because you you are setting your... When someone who loves you enough to sacrifice everything for you. When someone loves you that much, you should listen to the counsel they have. It doesn't mean they'll always be right, but it means you should always listen. For those of you who are younger and your parents are still a major part of your life, When dad sits down to talk to you or mom sits down to talk to you, you should listen to what they have to say. I'm not saying they're always right, but you should always listen. Anytime someone is willing to literally lay down their life for you, you should listen to that person because it is originating out of a place of love in their heart. Do you have people in your life that you are allowing to love you enough to tell you the last 5% of the truth. You know how the first 95% is easy. It's easy to talk about, but then you got to get down to, and I think these words, and I think you're about to make a mistake. That last 5% of the conversation, do you have people in your life that you are inviting to give you that counsel? Bow your heads with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that we'd recognize that the greater life doesn't live without pain. The greater life accepts that there will be times of heartache. And Lord Jesus, you help train us to accept that grief is the process of healing. You help us to go through it without hurry. You help us to to recognize that, that joy does return. God, we're grateful that you don't just leave us in brokenheartedness, but God, you heal our hearts. Lord Jesus, we also realize, though, that the greater life can get trapped in patterns. And God, the greatness of our life, our connection with you and others We'll oftentimes be determined by whether or not we're going to return to that same destructive thing time after time after time. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your Holy Spirit whispers in our ear when we're taking a wrong turn. Help us to be sensitive and listening for that. But Lord, also that we would listen and invite brothers and sisters in Christ, men and women of maturity, men and women of experience, to put their hand on our shoulders and say, friend, I think you're about to take a wrong turn. God, I thank you for the men and women of Cornerstone that do that for me. God, I am grateful for how they help protect my future by helping me see how I can return to those things. God, I pray every one of us would have the humility of heart or not to stand up and say, I will do it my way, but to genuinely listen, to genuinely pray, to genuinely seek counsel. Lord, before we make important decisions in our life. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your goodness towards us. We ask all in your name, amen.